Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It is I, Cindy Howes, your host. So grateful that you're listening to this episode today as we are going off book. We are interviewing someone who is not a musician, but nonetheless, it is a very honest conversation. We have on the podcast today, Betsy Siggins, former executive director of Club Passim, which if you have listened to the podcast before, uh, on about 80% of the episodes, we talk about how wonderful Club Passim is. It is a folk club, uh, nonprofit organization that's based in Harvard Square in Cambridge that does so much to uh, help up-and-coming folk musicians and establish a lot of people's career like Josh Ritter, Dar Williams, uh, Nais Mitchell, Patty Griffin, and it dates back to the 1950s. And Betsy has a significant role in the culmination of this club. And we certainly hear a lot of stories from Betsy about the club and about the musicians that she has interfaced with. She tells fascinating stories. We're so honored to have her on the podcast. Uh, Betsy will be receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from Club Passim on November 14th as they celebrate their 60th anniversary. That award presented to her by her friend and former Boston University roommate, Joan Baez. That will be a night to truly remember. We are honored to have Betsy on the podcast and excited to get into this interview on Basic Folk. So uh, before we get into it, though, I do want to point out that we do have Basic Folk knit hats for sale. They're on our website, cindyhouse.net. These are very special hats because... They not only have the Basic Folk logo sewn onto them, lovingly sewn onto them by my mom, Pat House, who also knit these hats. Uh, so they're very special and available online at the website, cindyhouse.net. You can check them out right now. Uh, there's also pictures on my social media of these hats. They're fantastic. Cold weather is coming. You are basic. You love folk music. Couldn't be more perfect combination. Check them out at cindyhouse.net. All right, Betsy Siggins. I will say that my most fond interaction with Betsy Siggins is back when I used to work at Club Passim. I told her this after we finished the interview. I said, um, my favorite interaction is when we were getting ready for the Campfire Festival, which is this really big weekend festival it happens on Memorial Day and Labor Day. And I was like running on fumes from working at three different part-time radio station jobs, just kind of like out of my tree trying to help and get ready. And I must have been 
you know, pretty insane at the time, whatever I was saying. And Matt Smith was there and Betsy turned to Matt and she was like, where'd you get this one, Matt? Like very tongue in cheek, like this person is crazy, but being very funny and very dry. And I very much appreciate it. And when I told her that story, she was like, aren't I lovely? But she is. Anyways, hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Betsy Siggins. She is a treasure and it was a real honor to sit down with her on her home in Cape Cod to talk about various things throughout her life. And I really appreciate her candidness. So please, uh, let's sit back and enjoy our conversation with Betsy Siggins on Basic Folk. Thank you so much for doing this, Betsy. This is a, it's a real pleasure. Well, really thank you. Looking forward to it. So we are in Katuit, Massachusetts, on the Cape, and this is the town that you grew up in. And it's a very lovely seeming town. I haven't spent much time here, but uh, what was your town like growing up and how have you seen it change since then? It was very small. It was really very, very small town. The town population was made up pretty much of white middle class Portuguese. There were a lot of Portuguese workers who lived in this town who I went to grammar school with and high school with. It was not a very liberal town. It was probably all Republican except the three people who were my parents' friends. Mm. That certainly has changed, Mm. but that's kind of what the makeup was. We moved here from New York City um, in 1947, the winter of 47. So I was in the fifth grade. It was not an easy transition for me because I really loved, I think I loved New York a lot. I went to public school there. My father was um, a naval architect, and he was working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard back then. My stepmother was a concert pianist who had given her first concert at 16 at Carnegie Hall. Wow. So I was well endowed with the musical background from very early on. After we came here, I went away to school after my stepmother and father separated and divorced. But I went to a school that was very, very, very art-rich. And um, Was that in Massachusetts? No. I, I, well, I went to a Quaker school in Providence for about a year. Um, and then I, my father found a school that was really much more tempered to what I thought I liked, which was music and art and theater and dance. And so I went to Cherry Lawn School in Darien, Connecticut, which sounds fancy, but it's not. It was built on the Montessori method, and it was absolutely filled with kids from Broadway brats. But that's where I first got introduced, probably at age maybe 16, to the Everly Brothers, to Nat King Cole, to, well, backing up. For whatever reasons, there's still probably I'll never know. I um, could get Wheeling, West Virginia on my radio at night here in Katuit. So before I knew it, I was already a fan of country and Western. And it was the more very, very uh, commercial country and Western. But it was great. I just loved it. I had no thinking about it. I just loved the sound. Mm -hmm. And so when I went away to school, I took up the accordion for a nanosecond in high school, (laughs) really to make my mom crazy. And I think I did a good job because she practiced the piano in the living room it felt like it was like 5 o'clock in the morning. 
So when I got to school and they said, do you want to try an instrument? I thought, well, this, this ought to do her in. <laughs> so I did that for a little while. Then I went away to school and I didn't pick up another instrument after that. Do you want to keep talking about your school in Connecticut? Just that it was a very enriching uh, three years of my life. And I did a lot of theater when I was there. I always had trouble memorizing lines, but it was a school that was very forgiving. And I had a off-Broadway tryout for a, a, an off-Broadway play. I, was, I tried out for some small part of it, and it was a lot of fun. I was terrified, but it was a lot of fun. I didn't get the part, but that's okay. It was an experience. And then I went on to Boston University's School of Fine and Applied Arts. I don't think it has that, that nomenclature around it anymore. But I thought I was going to be in the theater. I had done summer stock here on the Cape for years and years and years with the Oberlin College Gilbert and Sullivan group. So now that I'm really old, I can remember all those songs. Yeah. <laughs> in t- in um, talking about trying out for the off-Broadway play, uh, it br- brings to mind the question of what kind of young person were you? Were you shy or outspoken? I think I grew up both. I think I made up for for being shy by being outspoken. But it wasn't until I got into my 40s that I kind of pulled that all together and and got a sense of who I really was. My stepmother was a Czechoslovakian Jew whose family had escaped the the concentration camps in Czechoslovakia. And her parents got here and they both lived in they lived in Brooklyn and they were milliners. They worked in a hat factory. And by the time my mother was 14, she was teaching piano at home because there wasn't a lot of money. Mm-hmm. She grew up to be non-denominational, um, but it, there was a lot of stinging in her past. And people in Katuit were not very interested in that kind of a person, especially because she was Jewish. And I literally feel like they, my father was far more popular. He was an old Boston Brahmin, came from the right side of the tracks. It What's was a, a Boston Brahmin? The very sort of higher upper class, oh. well-educated white Bostonians. Mm-hmm. His deal was that he liked marrying women in trouble, and he found at least three of them. They were always way too young for him, and they were always in trouble, and he was always trying to save them. And then when they got saved, they moved on, sort of the sums up what did he ever figure that out I don't know he died so long ago I was 20 when he died in a car accident and I don't think we'd ever gotten around to those kinds of questions Mm. I was busy being a bad girl rebelling not doing not doing academic work he would always have to try to take me over to Woods Hole to find me a tutor for things like geometry algebra chemistry Things I was never going to use, I don't think, um, but things that made my eyes cross when I looked at the at the work. And my father was very patient with me and very, very, very kind. He knew that th- things theatrical, things artistic were far more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I felt I had some talent, and that was important. I wrote bad poetry. I painted bad pi- pictures. Oddly enough, I was the captain of the basketball team in, in at Cherry Lawn. I don't know how all those things blend together, but they were, they were my past. Hmm. So interesting. 
So you mentioned you attended Boston University in 1958, where you met Joan Baez. That is correct. Uh, you met in drama class? We did not. No. We found out a little, a few days down the pike that we were both in the, in the theater school. Our meeting was, and I'm sure this is repetitive, but we went to a freshman orientation in a big gymnasium. And um, we were all sitting, we were told to sit on the floor. So it looked like a thousand of us were sitting on the floor. And the guy who was leading this little chit chat said, will all the freshmen please put on their brown beanies? And someone looked at me and someone looked at Jim Queskin and someone looked at another person and said, I don't think so. So right then and there, we bonded over being not following those kinds of rules. As in, like, we're not going to put our beanies on. They're so stupid looking. Yeah. yeah. And so we didn't. And that, and then she had just started singing in Cambridge. She was living in Belmont where her dad had taken a, a, a teaching job at MIT. So they were in Belmont. Otherwise, they would have been in California, and she probably never would have gotten to BU. Academically, we were lousy. But we really had fun. Yeah, what drew you guys to each other? The music, I think. Being, being naughty in the music. What do you mean being naughty? Just not following rules. Oh. <laughs> she would tell her parents that she was in class when she was at my house. She would tell her parents she was sleeping over when she was singing music. And then she dropped out, I dropped out, and um, our relationship had, had become really solid by then. And she, I just adored her. I thought anybody who can do what she does and get up in the middle of the night at a Hayes-Bickford on Mass Ave and, and boogie at about 11 o'clock at night and sing and carry on and sing in Spanish, she was just a magnet, and we were all drawn to her. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later that I became more interested in her philosophies and her, her thoughtfulness and her, her good rebellion, um, her protest side. And and right after that, um, well, a little after I'd met her, I met Bob Siggins because he was playing. I was working at the Golden Vanity, the Cafe Yana, and Club 47. And <clears throat> Bob Siggins had come to Harvard on a, I think it was a football scholarship or a running scholarship from the Midwest. And he came on the train to Harvard, and he and another guy both had guitars on the train and it turned out they had been paired up as roommates. So Bob Siggins, early on, formed the Charles River Valley Boys, and that roommate, Clay Jackson, was the guitarist for many years. Because of Bob, because of Joan first and then Bob second, I have to say, I just learned so much from Bob about old time and country music and then bluegrass. But he had a friend named Eric Sackheim. Eric had gone to MIT, and he had a little apartment down the road, just outside the square. And I know this is not the right memory, but it's what I have. <laughs> we would go to Eric's house in the evenings or on weekends in particular, and he had the most incredible collection of 78 records. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, all of country music. Whatever had been published, he had. And we would sit around and listen to those old, old, old-timey stuff, and I would, I'd, I mean, that was another whole education for me. So my education went from British ballads to these really old country country blues duets, 
Um, and then, you know, I got indoctrinated into the jug band sound of music when Jim Queskin and Jeff Maldar and Maria Maldar formed the um, Jim Queskin jug band. And they played at the club. If you look at an old calendar, you'll see the same people um, evolve week after week, um, each one getting a day of the week. Um, by then, Joan had moved back to California. But Newport was wide open to all of us. I mean, if you were Bob Jones's friend, you went to Newport every single year. And in those days, people of color couldn't stay in a hotel. When they came to Cambridge, they couldn't stay in a hotel. So they stayed with us. And I didn't know how incredibly important and poignant that would become part of my life. Elizabeth Cotton could not buy a blouse at a, store, at, a, at a department store in Harvard Square. A friend had to go and buy it for her. Mississippi John Hurt and Reverend Gary Davis, those are the guys who would stay with us, with the Maldars, with me, with Queskin. There were other people that their lives were changed by that experience. Mm. But it was, it's part of who I am. What was it like to have those musicians stay at your house um, in terms of what did it do for you personally? And then, you know, what would you actually do while you had a guest in the house? Feed them, give them booze, and put them to bed on the couch. Um, I can remember Gary Davis sleeping on our living room couch because we, at that point we only had one bedroom. And um, he would come and, you know, those guys would come up to Newport and play, and then they'd come to Club 47 and become, that was sort of their route. Um, there weren't many places that had known them or were booking them, and we became that pathway from New, from the Deep South to Newport to us and then down to the Smithsonian. So that was, you know, it sounds like a, a very large route, but it was built out of love of music mm. and the experience of getting to know this kind of American music. I worked at a radio at Harvard's radio station like one Saturday afternoon a week with a guy named Dan Becker and Tom Rush, and we played whatever we wanted, and we had friends come in and sing. Tom Rush the musician. Yes, Tom Rush the musician. Tommy, as I like to call him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, when I talk about this stuff, it just truly, I find it amazing to think that we are all still those 18-year-old kids still and that those friendships have existed through music and about music and about justice and about inequality and about women's rights and people's rights and you, you name it. As somebody who's seen a lot of change over the course of being involved in the folk music scene, how have you seen, like, what is your observation on how race relations and how uh, people uh, treat women in the music world? I think it's a lot better, but there's always room for more improvement. I think women are still struggling. I don't think they get paid enough. I don't think they get um, enough kudos unless they're huge pop stars like Beyonce. I mean, that's another realm of music that they've made a lot of money and changed a lot of hearts. I like rap music. I mean, I've, I've always thought of rap music as the same thing as the beats talking freely and openly and kind of scolding us for what's wrong in the world. Mm. And I, I fell right into it. I, I don't, I, uh, that's my explanation. Can you talk about Bob Dylan? I can. Yes. 
Um, I'm interested how you met him and what was his part of the Cambridge scene and your recollection of Dylan going electric and your favorite memory. You're not going to get that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I met Bob probably because of Eric Von Schmidt, who was kind of the king of blues music in Harvard Square. And lots of young wannabe blues musicians hung out with Eric all the time. And Eric, when he married Helen von Schmidt, um, we happened to be living in the same four-apartment house across the street from Mount Auburn Hospital. And Dylan showed up at the club, I think because of Eric. And what, whatever time he spent in Cambridge, um, he was just beginning to perform at the Brandeis Folk Festival. I, like a bazillion other people, was totally starstruck, but not starstruck. I was amazed at how he could think, how he could talk, how he could carry on with all the information he already had in his head, the quest he was on to to know more about the world and about writers and about artists and playwrights and poets. My recollection is that the Charles River Valley Boys had a gig at Gertie's Folk City in the village and that Dylan was on the bill. And that Dylan would say to me, this is, didn't happen a lot, but he said, listen, I, let's go out into, Graham, into uh, Washington Square Park. I need to smoke and I need to talk. So we would go out into the park and we would sit in the afternoon or the early evening. And he would chain smoke, wiggle his foot, and talk about stuff that I just felt, God, I wish I'd known that stuff. It was just amazing. Again, it was, it was a a trip for me to expand who I was. And I didn't formulate it at that time so much, but it became that. Was it hard for you to find your place in this world full of musicians when you yourself was not a musician? No. I liked being the mama bear. I liked that role of being also the bitch, bossing people around, putting people up, making meals, going on small road trips going to concerts with artists. I, I love that part of it. And the three, the three songs that are recorded of me are with Jim Rooney. Um, and, it, you know, real country stuff. But it was not what I wanted to do it, any more than I wanted to really be an actress. I liked the world. I didn't like the work. Mm. So I found that place to be very warm and comforting, just to be... On the sidelines, in, in you know, just that... Your caretaker. Yeah, yeah. And I loved that idea, and because I didn't feel like I got very good caretaking when I was growing up. So I want to talk about your work at the Smithsonian. So um, Club 47 closed in 1968. You moved to <clears throat> Washington, D.C. Yeah, Bob had gotten um, post-doctorate in neuropharmacology. You want to know what that is? Brain... Chemicals of the brain. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a reason to move to Washington because that's where the job was. And I had become really good friends with Ralph because he and the Greenbrier boys used to play at the club. They played in Newport. We hung out together. Um, And Ralph was just like this incredible person who knew everything about folk music, certainly that I didn't know. So I got to know that, too. When we went to look for a house... No, I went to look for a house in Washington, and Ralph picked me up at the airport. It was the night that Martin Luther King had been killed, 
and the city was in flames mm. all around the ridge of the city. I don't know about all around, but certainly there was an awful lot of vandalism and fires. And Ralph picked me up, and we drove around to some of these areas, not into them, but around them. Um, and that had a, a real effect on me. I rented a house from a friend of Ralph's a half a block from where he lived. And he said, get squared away. I've got stuff for you to do. So Bob was... You, a, did you have any idea what he would ask you to do? Not at that moment, no. But I knew it was going to be music because he was at the Smithsonian. And you were game. <laughs> More than game. <laughs> he had had the first Festival of American Folklife on the Mall the year before. So it was in its second summer when I got there. I got there at the end of April, middle of May. And one of the things Ralph really needed was he wanted to humanize the different cultures that were represented on the mall for those two weeks. I guess it was two weeks. What I mean by that is he would pick a state, uh, let's say Wyoming, and he would bring in the music, the dance, the food, the Native American culture, so that you got a full picture of, of what that microcosm of Wyoming looked like. One of the things Ralph had me do was to be a liaison between some of those groups and the outside world. The Native Americans were shy, and they didn't know what to do other than to do their craft. And so I would try to be that person that, that humanized the experience. I don't, I don't want to paint a picture of my making you know, more of this than was due, but I loved that work, and I loved this, like, you know, working at Club 47. It was caretaking. You lived in New York for 20 years and founded programs for homeless individuals with AIDS and worked at various soup kitchens and food pantries. So while you were in New York, how did you stay connected to folk music? In the 70s, I think it was Thanksgiving, and I was feeling like... I was completely out of place. I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't have any new avenues. I, I walked into a, a neighborhood church, and I'm not religious, but I walked in there because somebody said to me, I think they serve food on Thanksgiving. I walked through the door, and a woman looked at me, and she said, why are you standing there? I said, well, I just barely got through the door. She said, go pour that coffee, and I got stuck. She became another one of my mentors. Her name was Gretchen Buchenholz, and she was running a feeding program really for elderly people in that church. And little by little, and it was within a year, they needed a new executive director. It was a young organization, and they were supported by churches and synagogues all throughout the upper parts of Manhattan. And I fell into that job. They needed somebody. I didn't think it was permanent, but it was permanent. And I ran, eventually, um, Gretchen found a public school on 102nd Street and 2nd Avenue. And they, th their cafeteria closed at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And Gretchen said, this is not acceptable. You have all the qualities of being able to prepare food for people. Um, I'm going to take this up with the state. And she did. And they opened a soup kitchen there. So when AIDS became prominent, and this is like 19, 
78, 79, 80. I went to the board of directors who were these churches and synagogues, and I said, I, I feel a moral obligation to doing more for these folks than just giving them a bag of groceries and having them go away. They're in terrible, many of them are in terrible shape. So that's how the AIDS program was really begun. I mean, I, I involved myself in as much of their lives as was healthy. Um, I knew there was a line that I could draw. And I guess feeding people who were so disenfranchised in America um, became really important to me. And you asked about my musician friends. Well, thing was, none of them at that time had their own foundations. Picked up that imaginary cell phone, <laughs> and I called Joan. I called Taj. I called James Taylor. I called Jeff Muldar. I called John Prine. I said, I need to raise money and awareness for what I'm doing here in East Harlem. And they said, pick a date. It was that hard. <laughs> so I picked a date, and we did probably three or four concerts over the three or four years. And getting them to endorse what I was doing was really nice. I mean, I didn't ask them to do it, but they wrote a little thing in the program book about why they were doing it. So on the, on the you know, it was by 1995, I, I'd gone, I'd left that job. By then, I'd kind of burned out, and I thought I wanted to come home, meaning here, Boston, Cambridge. And it turned out that in 1996, Passim had become Passim, but it was within a nanosecond of closing. But when I came back, there was a small board of directors. They had no, they didn't know what they were doing. They were doing it because they cared about the place, but they didn't really know how to be a board. And somebody was on the payroll to be the manager, and he never took a paycheck because there wasn't any money. But he also put it on the books. So when I got there, I had his lawsuit sitting in my lap. And that cost us $300 a month for it felt like forever, but it wasn't. But it was, I didn't take a salary the first year I was there at all. There wasn't any money. I mean, Matt was working for nothing. Karen LeCompte was working for nothing. I was working for nothing. And Julie Ryu was working for nothing. However the miracle happened, it happened. And we be, little, little by little, we began climbing out of that, that debt. And Harvard was not happy because we hadn't paid the rent in years. And there was a lot of politicking that we had to do to prove our worth. Having done that in New York and blah, 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 <laughs> um, I just stuck with it. When you came back to Club 47 as Club Passim, it's very clear on the business side of things, how you were uh, operating, which sounds awesome. You're a badass. But how did you find the music at the club versus what it was like when you first were involved? Yeah, well, I threw myself into it again. I, I went a couple of times to the club before there was anything in my sights about it. I'd been brought back to Boston by a group of restaurateurs who had been at a lecture that I gave about hunger. And because in New York, we had started the only nonprofit uh, restaurant for people on welfare. Had never been done before. And which meant there was a menu for people who weren't on welfare and there was a menu for people who were. And it was a training program for people who'd been homeless. You had to have a house to get training, but they had to have been homeless. Um, it was dicey. <laughs> there were knives in the kitchen <laughs> and people with short tempers 
and long, short fuses. But we had a social worker who was there every day, and it was a, it was a great experiment. And one of the things I did there was I convinced probably 10 or 15 top chefs in New York to come and donate a meal. And they donated a meal and they taught the kitchen crew how to make it. Anyhow, back to Boston. I'd come up to Boston to do a talk on that process of doing that training program and low-income menus. And somebody from the Boston restaurant world was there. And about two months later, he called me up and I was still at Food and Hunger Hotline. And he said to me, would you have any interest in moving back here? I know you're from here. Would you have any interest in moving back and replicating that program here in Boston? I said, well, you know, it's kind of serendipitous. We're kind of thinking that it's time to get out of New York. It's getting very expensive. And he said, well, if you decide to do it, I'll get, I'll, I'll get you a job. So we did. It was like the beginning of 1997, I think. And there was a group of them that were going to be my advisors. And what they didn't tell me, and they certainly should have, but they didn't, they wanted me to raise $3 million and start the program within hmm. two weeks. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. I said, you have misunderstood me. This is about community building. I have to be in a community. I have to convince the community that this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We have to raise awareness before we can raise money. Mm -hmm. Oh, they didn't like that at all. So after three months, they said, clearly this is not a program that's going to work for us. I said, you're right, it's not. Mm. So that's when I went to Passim, um, full tilt. And Julie was really cool with me. She said, I said, I don't, I've missed 20 years of music. I know my past, but... Um, I need re-education. And she said, I'm going to give you a stack of CDs. You're going to take them home, and we're going to talk about them. Bless her heart. That's how I got back into passing. What did she give you? Everybody who, I mean, Ellis Paul, John Gorka, Sean Colvin, Nancy Griffith, um, lesser knowns, you know, that were hanging around the club. But it was, you know, it was like a crash course in who was playing music now. Mm. And then when I got there, it seemed important to to reintroduce some of the old-timers who were still playing music and who still sounded good to mix it up. And, of course, that, that's what happened, and that's what happens now. I mean, Matt's, Matt's a ma magician. Ah, yeah, he is. Just a magician at what he does and how he does it. And I'm very grateful to both Julie and to Matt for giving me the space and time to learn the craft again. You started the New England Folk Music Archive in 2009. How did that idea come about? Is, is it, where is it actually located? University of Massachusetts in Amherst. It's in that big, big, big archive building they have with a lot of left-wing wonderful archives up there. But when I left, I had left them with both the archive project, the children's program, and um, the music school because my thinking was that to, in order to be a nonprofit, you really need to have programs that address other needs because just collecting money does not make you a nonprofit. So it was on that impetus that I kind of shoved those at people and they bought them. When it was made clear to me that there was very little money after the, the stock market fell in '09, mm -hmm. five of us were let go. And I didn't want a music school. I didn't want a children's program, but I did want the archives because nine-tenths of them were mine. 
So we had to work out a deal where I could get my archives out of that building. I got them out of that building and I took them over to the Cambridge Historical Society because we, we had enough in common. And they were very, very kind. I couldn't bring them all there because all wouldn't have fit there. And I didn't think of it as temporary, but I didn't think of it as permanent either. I didn't know what I thought. But my, my girlfriend, Millie Ron, who is a folklorist who lives in Cambridge, uh, in uh, Belmont, and who did her master's thesis on the history of Club 47, she called me up out of the blue down here probably 25 years ago, and she said, I'm going to start my, my thesis, and I think I ought to start by interviewing you. So she drove down here, we met, and we've been friends ever since. And she was working on the archives with me. She was getting a small piece of money for doing the work. But what she did was, I had 20 or 30, I can't remember the exact number, reel-to-reels, that I had taken out of the Club 47 when we closed. And I had them in a plastic bag. Don't tell me how awful that was. (laughs) And I dragged them to Europe, to New York, to Washington, D.C., back to Cambridge. I called Bill Nowlin at Rounder Records, and I said, can you help me? Oh, of course I can. So he picked them up and then promptly lost them for another three or four years. And I finally said to him, you, you gotta put, you, you're going to have to get a sheriff to come and find those. You know you didn't throw them out. <laughs> so they appeared one day in the same plastic bag. Um, so I said to Millie, what do you think we ought to... Now, this is before I parted ways with, with uh, Fassine, or they parted ways with me. She said, I don't know, but I think you've got enough in this rack of reel-to-reels that we should try to get a grant. Bless her heart, she wrote a, a Grammy development grant. It was huge and tedious, and no one could have done it except her, who had the determination and some experience in writing the, the really big stuff. So she wrote that grant, and it came in just as I was going out the door. And there was a little kerfuffle about whether that grant was mine or whether it was Passim's, and it came to me. And we went right to Harvard's audiovisual department on Story Street, the greatest guys, kind of kooky guys who work in those places. And um, Darren... I can't think of his last name, but he's just great. He said, you get the money, I'll, I'll do the transferring for you. So Millie and I sat up in his office off and on for three months, going through every single one once they were in good enough shape for me to identify. And um, I wrote everything down, and Millie wrote everything down. And so it was a, the grant was in two parts. It was a preparation, a planning grant, which was 10000 and no, a planning grant was five, and the next grant was the implementation grant, which was another 10. I'm looking at a tape there, and I'm looking at the handwriting on it. And I said, gee, that handwriting is very familiar. Well, I s- took a picture of it with my then <laughs> camera, mm-hmm. phone camera, and I sent it down to Bob Jones. He said, yeah, that's my handwriting. You're right. And it was from a trip he took down south with Alan Lomax to a prison to interview prisoners. It doesn't have a lot on it, but it just was like gold. Just like gold. So those tapes are all transferred, and they're on CD. And if you go to my box on the archives website, you'll see lists and lists and lists of all the things that I've procured, stolen, borrowed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
plus all the other stuff. Not all of my stuff has been transferred, but a lot of it has. So through Millie, I met a woman named Kathy Newstead. Newstead. She's a folklorist also. Kathy said, why don't you meet my husband? And I said, okay. She said he just, he just left his job at the Pew Foundation after 30 years of raising money for mostly for um, conservation. Tom and I clicked. I grabbed Brian Quinn from the old days and I said, I need your help. I need you. I need your steadiness. He became the president of the newly formed nonprofit of Folk New England. Tom became the executive director. And it was Tom that went to the guy who runs the University of Massachusetts archives. And he said, do you have any folk music? And he said, Rob said, no, I don't. But boy, would we love some. And so Tom said, well, I got a deal for you. <laughs> so the, the last thing that Rob Cox, who's the head of the archives there, he's just acquired the Dan Daniel Ellsberg papers. What are those? Remember Watergate? Yes. All those no, papers. I wasn't alive then. Well, you, you know of it. I know it. of it. I've heard of it. Okay, the Dan <laughs> Daniel Ellsberg was the Watergate papers. Oh. And the um, end of Nixon's term. Well. So they just got all that, which is fabulous. Wow. So I'm the only folk music. I am now beginning, and I mean beginning, my memoirs. What's that process been like for you? I can't even answer. I am such a procrastinator. But, you know, I've had these guardian angels that probably never thought of themselves as that. Mm -hmm. um, but as I look back, now that I'm 80, I can afford to feel that way about 10 or 15, 20 people that mm -hmm. have just always had my back in one shape or another for whatever work I've been doing. And um, this is not even beginning to touch all the musicians who've touched my life. I mean, I have pictures of jo Spider John Kerner taking care of Leah when she was two, his idea with babysitting would be lying on the couch with a hangover and having her read a magazine to him. <laughs> Had lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a trip with Dylan. Um, we're in Woodstock staying with Jeff and Maria when they were still married. And Dylan came and picked me up to take me up to Rick Danko's house for a party. This is long before anybody was anything, really. Mm -hmm. And it was a snowstorm. And I think either Jeff or Maria said to me, you going to get in the car with him? He has a reputation, you know. I said, well, I guess I could die happy <laughs> if he's yakking at me. So we drove up to Rick Danko's house, and it was an all-night music party with everybody singing all the time. And at sunrise, we went out into the yard, and it was two feet of snow, and everybody laid down in the snow making those snow angels, mm -hmm. singing angel band. I could have died right then and there, as Joan might have said. <laughs> We've been talking about all of the wonderful work that you've done throughout your life and your career. Do you have one job in particular that's been your favorite? Nope. They've all benchmarked my entire existence, and they all came around at the right time. Who would have thought I would be running soup kitchens and pay programs for people with AIDS in East Harlem? Couldn't have imagined that. I mean, the other thing that I would say is that I didn't, I neglected to tell you that Ralph Rensler often would send me on road trips with Mike Seeger. Not often, but a couple of times. And he would send me down south in the early, mid-70s. We would go to take black musicians to white campuses for concerts where that had never happened before. And my memory is of Mississippi John Hurt and 
Bessie Jones and the Georgia Sea Island Singers. We had the Georgia Sea Island Singers lived on an island off of the coast of Georgia. When the tide came in, you couldn't get there. And it was that remote. And they were just like full of life, full of chutzpah. And we, we, we would be driving an old kind of converted truck. And we would take them to Atlanta. I, I remember particularly going to Emory College. And they're, they're, they're feeling that, what, what is this going to feel like to be in an all-white campus college co- concert with just us black folks? They could not have been more gracious. They could not have loved the music more. Mm. It was a huge turning point in everybody's life that this existed in their, in their country, in their life, in their counties, and they had never, they'd never heard gospel music before. Mm. So that's the kind of thing Ralph would have me do. I was with him towards the end of his life. He was living on Noshon Island, which is just off of Woods Hole. It was hard to watch him go. He was only 57. Wow. Yeah. It's not old. God, I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, I mean, I think, you know, I could yak on and on, but I think you've got the essence of, the essence of me. Yeah, I think so. Good. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I do this thing on my podcast called The Lightning Round, where I ask you questions like, do you like dogs or cats? Those kind of questions. Are you okay, for go that? for it. Okay, here we go. Lakes or beaches? Beaches. Dogs, cats, or something else? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. What is your favorite U.S. city? New York. What's the first album you bought with your own money? Probably was the Everly Brothers. First concert? I can't go back that far. Last book you read? A book called Matterhorn, which is about the Vietnam War. You a morning person or a night owl? Night owl. Flying or invisibility? I don't know what that means. Would you rather be able to fly or would you rather be invisible? Oh, I'd rather fly. What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The Taj Mahal in India. Perfect. Bessie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Betsy Siggins for the win in the lightning round. She was great. She mu- I'm pretty sure Betsy Siggins was the best person we've had on the lightning rounds. Uh, so very much appreciate uh, her sitting down. Actually, um, we sat down for an hour and a half, um, and it was very difficult to edit this down to 40 minutes of gold, uh, but we did it. Thanks to Adam Corey, who produced this episode of Basic Folk with assistant production from Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes. I host Basic Folk. Uh, Also, um, you can check out my website, cindyhouse.net, for show notes. Uh, You can also sign up for the mailing list on the website, and you can sign up for the Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics. Hey, subscribe and review. Tell your friends. Buy a knit hat. Be a star. Appreciate you, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.